0: Well, good evening and uh, welcome to this evidence-based dietary and pharmacologic approach to managing patients with hyperkalemia and associated comorbidities. I'm Dr. George Backris from the University of Chicago, and we have a lot of information for you tonight and hopefully some interactions that I hope you'll like. The clinical trial update for newer therapeutic options to treat hyperkalemia, which I'm going to give you, and then Dr. Weir and I are going to discuss this. So let me just jump right into this and talk about the use of potassium binders to manage hyperkalemia. And first of all, I think we need to set the stage here for what is important. There are predictors of hyperkalemia. So it's it's the fact that you're on an ACE inhibitor, if your GFR is 90, you do not have risk for hyperkalemia some people actually think you do and in fact what we did is take a look at all of the clinical trials that appropriately measured potassium and these are people with kidney disease so clearly they're going to be at higher risk and what we found was very simply this this is the easiest take-home message you can have it's the four five club if your gfr is less than 45 your GFR is less than 45, or your serum potassium at a GFR that is below 60, your serum potassium is above 4.5, you have significantly higher risk for hyperkalemia if you're going to use blockers of the renin angiotensin system. And in fact, the best predictor is the combination of the two a potassium greater than 4.5 and a GFR of less than 45. So if you have that and you're consuming a regular potassium diet that most Americans would consume, especially if they're trying to be healthy, you've got a higher risk for developing hyperkalemia, defined as a potassium of greater than 5.5. 5. Now, there are guideline recommendations, both from the American Diabetes Association and the KDIGO, the International Guidelines, um, regarding kidney disease progression, in diabetes, and both are pretty much saying the same thing. And that is that you must be using either a blocker of the renin-angiotensin system that is an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker as part of the mainstay of therapy for slowing progression of kidney disease in these patients that have hypertension. And moreover, if they have because it's also mandated that you measure urine albumin excretion with a spot albumin creatinine ratio if it's greater than 300 you must be on a blocker of the renin angiotensin system as well as an sglt2 and other things but bottom line is you need to be on these drugs and we're not talking about five milligrams of lisinopril or 10 milligrams of enalapril. we're talking about real doses. 20 to 40 milligrams of lisinopril, 10 milligrams of ramipril, highest tolerated doses. Now, these are some studies. These are clinical trials that were looking at patients, all of whom had kidney disease. And you can see the numbers of patients. These are not small studies. And you can see the definition of hyperkalemia and what the rate of hyperkalemia was. So you can see it's fairly substantial. And Additionally, when you look at heart failure studies, so these are three trials in heart failure Rawls, Emphasis, and Ephesus. And again, you can see here that these are people not only on ACEs and ARBs, but there's a group on an ACE or an ARB plus spironolactone. And you can see here the rate of hyperkalemia that occurs in these patients. Now, these are guideline directed therapies to reduce mortality and hospitalization and yet you have an example here what i was talking about earlier of hyperkalemia precluding the use of these agents not a good thing so what ends up happening and most physicians do this and i'm sure you're guilty of it you down titrate the ras blocker so you can say that they're still on lisinopril 5 but i already told you that's worthless it's not doing anything and so the question is, who's doing a favor for whom? So these are data from the USRDS, and you can see here that my code, these are billing codes for kidney disease. So the 585.3 is stage three kidney disease, 0.4, I'm oh, sorry, 4-5, but stages four and five. And you can see that in the months and the dating, the time to start dialysis, you're seeing the use of these agents markedly falls and dramatically decreases by as much as 20 30 percent now who's doing a favor for whom this is a very nicely done study by a nephrologist even though it's published in a managed care journal that actually looked at different stages of ckd this is percentage of people who expired so this is looking at mortality mortality very simple you're either dead or alive in people that are 65 or over, and whether they had kidney disease, heart failure, diabetes, or anybody over 65. And the gray are the people that had their RAS blockade discontinued. The orange is submaximal doses, those are the people on five of lisinopril. And then the maximal doses are in blue. I put the numbers in there, but I think that even the fifth grader looking at this would tell you immediately. That there's not a big difference between the orange and the gray bars. That's your low dose ACE that you think you're doing something about. So you need to keep this in mind when you make these decisions to alter the dose. You're not doing anybody, you're certainly not doing the patient a favor. So this is important. So let's talk about ways to maintain the dosing. And the ways are potassium binders. There are a number of potassium binders that are available. You're familiar with SPS, that's how most of us grew up, and thank God that's moved over because most people couldn't take that for more than a day or two anyway, and it has a lot of issues, including toxicity issues. So I put it there for completeness, but we have two other resins. We have peteramir, which is a calcium-based resin. We have ZS9, or actually sodium zirconium cyclosilicate more precisely, that you may know as localma and uh veltasa but these are available that in the in the um the milieu you can get them from any pharmacy and um there are coupons available to get them and the disturbances here are minimal and they are well tolerated and I think the important point here is that these drugs can be given daily and i'm going to show you this data in a minute can be given daily and the major side effect of pteromir is not hypomagnesemia it's constipation and with the uh, szc or the zs9 that compound in a dose escalating form has edema as a major side effect so those are the things that you need to think about when you're giving these agents This is a short review of sodium uh, K-exalate, and you can see that in 2009 and 2010, look, at the drug was approved in 1958. It took nothing to get it approved. But in 2009, 2010, there was a statement by Rick Stearns, no convincing evidence that SPS increases fecal potassium losses in experimental animals or humans, and growing concern about suspicions that SPS in sorbitol can cause bowel ischemia. So these are important observations. Peteromere, as I mentioned earlier, is a calcium-based non-absorbed polymer, works in the distal colon, which is where potassium is handled in the gut. And clearly just show you what it looks like. And there are a number of trials that have looked at this agent. There's the Pearl HF, a heart failure trial. There's the Amethyst-DM trial, which I was privileged enough to lead. And then there's the Opal-HK trial, which Dr. Weir was privileged enough to lead. And all of these trials specified safety, efficacy, and tolerability of these agents with significant benefit across the board by all of them. The amethyst DN was a pretty straightforward study, and this basically looked at two levels of potassium coming into the study. And you can see the screening values in front of you. I don't have time to go through all of this, but I think it's important to see that we had one group that had higher potassiums and one group that had lower potassiums. And these were randomized to three different dosing regimens of pteromir. And the higher potassium dose started at a higher dose of pteromir. And these are followed up for a period of one year. So these are the data that you see, and you can see that a lot of these people, about 20% in the mild hyperkalemia group, were over 75. And most of these people were in their 60s to begin with. And you can also see they were predominantly hypertensive, and the GFRs were predominantly in the 40s, and the higher potassium groups were in the 30s. Clearly, this is not a group that has normal kidney function that's walking around. And they also had, the majority of them had class 2 New York heart class heart failure. This is the take-home message. This is looking at both groups, and it's looking at the change in potassium over the 52-week period. And you can see that they both came down nicely, stayed down. And then there was a washout period. The question was, what's going to happen during the washout period? Well, interestingly, the potassium levels did not go back to baseline, but they went up a little bit. And a lot of this probably was changed in dietary patterns that the patients had over time as well. But you can see very clearly that there was a benefit that did persist for one month after stopping the drug. Now, This is another study looking within this group, this large study, at the heart failure population. And again, you can see here the breakdown of the people with heart failure. You can see that there's a smaller group of people because this is a subset of the amethyst DN. But even here, when you look at this, the results are the same. And again, you can see looking at changes with heart failure on the top, without heart failure on the bottom. It didn't matter. Everybody got similar benefit and good binding across the board that was consistent. Now, in this one-year study, what were the most common side effects? Well, magnesium was lower. Now, it says hypomagnesemia, but magnesium here was dropping 0.1 milligram per deciliter. So this is not a huge drop, but it was a reduction in magnesium. And constipation certainly in the people at the higher doses was a major problem and i will tell you clinically it's a major problem now with pteromir there are drug interactions and specifically there was a very large paper and the reference is there for you if you want to see it the fda mandated that they look at this so they looked at 28 different um drugs that potentially could be of importance in binding. And what they found were three commonly used drugs, levothyroxine, metformin, and ciprofloxacin, which is not used that much anymore, but nevertheless, these are the three that they had interactions with. So what that means is if you're taking these drugs and you're taking pteromir, you need to allow three hours between dosing. And if you do that, you'll be okay. But this is an important observation. Now, the other issue with patiramir is it was looked at as an outcome trial in the DIAMOND and in the AMBER trial to ask the question: In people with kidney disease who have resistant hypertension, can they stay on spironolactone, the fourth drug indicated to treat resistant hypertension? And what they did in the AMBER trial is randomized people to, well, everybody got spironolactone because everybody had resistant hypertension. They were all on three drugs. And then they randomized people to pateromere versus placebo. And the question was, how many people can stay on spironolactone? And the winner, of course, was the people taking pateromere by a significant margin. And the people in the placebo group, I might add 24% developed hyperkalemia. So admittedly, these are people with GFRs in the range of 38 to 40, but still, this is a a group that definitely can benefit because the blood pressures were not that different, but that's because the placebo group needed two additional medications to be added to equal what spironolactone was doing, and it didn't equal it. It was still below that, but still, that's what we had. The DIAMOND trial... Was a good intentional effort looking at cardiovascular outcome in people that were hyperkalemic, unable to take medications, and they were randomized to bacterium or placebo. The bad news is the trial was stopped early, and the results are published in the European Heart Journal, um, just published. But um, unfortunately, yes, there was a trend, but there was nothing significant because there were not enough events so it was a good effort but I, you have to know what ultimately happened this looks at the data from the uh, amber study and i just wanted to show you here what the data are in terms of spiro versus placebo and so you can see the difference for yourself if you look at serious adverse events The people taking spiron placebo had twice as much hyperkalemia and discontinuation rates as the people taking pteromone. Now, let's look at sodium, zirconium, and cyclosilicate. There's a very different molecule. This is sodium-based, and you can see the chemistry here is very different than the polymer I was showing you earlier. Here we have other trials. The harmonized trial, where the primary endpoint was change in potassium compared to placebo? This was uh, a secondary analysis in an open label uh, phase of the study, where they looked at changes in potassium going out 24 to 48 hours, and then the randomized phase went out for a month. The inclusion criteria you can see in front of you, and they excluded people on dialysis, etc. What they did here is for 48 hours you took 10 grams three times a day of These uh, SCC. And patients who could achieve normal kalemia proceeded to the randomization phase. And then you can see the three different doses that were given in a double blind fashion. And these people were followed out for a month. Now you can see here the change in serum potassium based on the dosing of the drug. And clearly there is a benefit that you see across the board. This is a longer term going out. Uh, much more frequently over the one-month period. And again, you can see a dose response with those at the higher doses getting a greater response and then being maintained over that period of time. Now, as far as safety and tolerability goes, you can see the edema was numerically higher in the people receiving 15 grams a day. So I don't think that's a big surprise. I told you that earlier, and this is the evidence for it. Now this is a study that it's a different study that actually looked at this similar to what we did with Pateromir, and this went out for 1 year as well and again you can see here in a maintenance phase of ZS9 it uh, was well tolerated and clearly much like Pateromir, gave you consistent day in day out benefit so i think really here we need to kind of put it together and talk about management and long-term strategies here to make sure that guideline therapy is implemented because in the people that can take guideline therapy it's, it's been shown time and time again they have better outcomes and lower mortality than the people that don't or the patient or the physician is afraid so rather than dose titrating down you should think about potassium binders to help get you where you need to be. We have two well-tolerated, approved binders that have been around, one since 2015, the other since 2018. So these are not necessarily novel compounds. They have been around. So with that, we have newer binders, not just agents to lower potassium. And I think with that, I'm going to stop and I'm going to invite Dr. Weir back so that we can have a little chit-chat. So, Matthew?
1: Well, thanks very much, George, uh, and good evening, everybody. That was a very nice presentation. Obviously, you know, we've had potassium binders now in the U.S. for several years. I mean, I can speak briefly. You know, I was involved in some of the clinical trials with Dr. Backris and doing many of these studies and You know, it was interesting when I first started using uh, potassium binders, I didn't really know in clinical practice, you know, exactly what they would do. I mean, a clinical trial is a clinical trial and practice is practice. But very quickly, I realized they actually do work. They are safe. Uh, They are well tolerated. Uh, I had very few, if any, complaints about tolerability issues. And they very consistently dropped the serum potassium into the 4.6 to 4.7 range, really almost regardless of where the initial potassium was. And uh, um, again, I was very impressed that there was no overshooting and no uh, significant problems uh, related to uh, uh, patients taking them on a daily basis. And Now, I was going to ask you, uh, George, I mean, in your experience, do you have that same feeling? I mean, for me, almost everybody's on the standard starting dose and almost everybody ends up around 4.6 or 4.7. Has that been pretty much similar for you, too?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I was just going to say that I've never had to use uh, the top dose of either drug ever. (laughs) Um, At most, I've gone to the moderate dosing. But I've never had to go to the high dose. So I think that's an important point. And it it basically reinforces what you were just saying in terms of actually adequately being able to manage potassium in these patients and not sacrifice reducing dosing of medications that we know have been proven in clinical trials at these higher doses to be a benefit. So clearly a, a good thing.
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting in that one long-term study, George, that you showed with sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, one of the fascinating observations is that 14% of the patients in that study were actually able to be initiated on RAS blockade where they were not on it at the beginning of the study because of the better control of uh, potassium, which I think is really an interesting observation because, again it clearly illustrates the fact that there is an opportunity like you showed in Amber and like obviously was demonstrated in uh, the diamond study that you can enable what we would all agree is appropriate guideline based medical therapy uh, for people who have either heart disease or kidney disease and really need uh, these disease modifying therapies.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's important and, and it's unfortunate that I see clinicians, even today, even today, this is 23 years after you and I published the the paper still being quoted about changes in potassium and creatinine and what have you, um, I, the fear factor needs to go away because the the use of these agents alleviates that and allows you, enables you to do what you're supposed to be doing Anyway, per the guidelines. So yeah, you
1: know, I, I think it also allows the opportunity to avoid, shall we say, overblasting patients with loop diuretics to facilitate kaliuresis. Uh, I've even seen some people—I'm not going to say who—have actually given fludrocortisone to people to keep the serum potassium down, and wow. we know that is te- a terrible thing to do because it accelerates vascular disease. Um, it just makes your life easier and you can develop more confidence that you can use guideline based medical therapy for people. And, you know, particularly for you, George, I mean, you just finished a very large and important clinical trial demonstrating the utility of MRA, uh, in people with diabetic kidney disease. Now, granted, uh, there was only a 0.2 milliequivalent per liter change in potassium with the finerenone, but nonetheless, some people did have rises in potassium. And again, here's another example where in the field of kidney disease uh, modification, we are seeing the advantage of MRA in addition to highest tolerated dose of ACE or ARB. And again, we have a therapeutic modality to mitigate your concerns uh, in this regard.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any any problem. Now you're going to give us some cases, and we're going to talk about The dietary impact of this and how we can complement what we normally do with the medications by actually educating the patient on proper diets, et cetera.